Hey, good morning all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. It's a Thursday, September 8th, and it's going to be commentary day around here, Dan. I got a little riff to go on. I want to make some suggestions about how a person, a community, maybe a bunch of us could think about being religious, specifically Christian in America, without being a Christian nationalist. You know, I think Christian nationalism is a real threat. I think it's been an alternative to the American experiments uh, from our from our founding. People have been suggesting that we be a Christian nation and we ought not be. I think it would be a real problem. But it raises a really important question for a lot of people, which is, well, what's the role of faith in civic life then? Like if, if civic life is not made up of, you know, a nation with a religious perspective, what role does religion, Christianity play? There's also been a lot of suggestions of how that should go. Uh, and many people have, have views around that. So I've been doing a bunch of thinking about this because it's important for me personally, it's important to the work that we do, and also I want to uh, offer a, a few suggestions on how we can think about that and share that with other people if they're also thinking about it. So take this as a little addition to you know your, your ongoing conversations about faith, the common good, and civic life. But first and foremost, my watch told me today that summer is holding on for another day here in this. <laughs> it's going to be hot like 85, 89, you know, one of those little, hey, sure, the calendar says September, but the thermometer says August. So it's a glorious, uh, warm fall day for the kids in school that don't have air conditioning around here, which is still a lot of our schools because they don't need them. Uh, you know, they're going to be hot and sweaty. Yeah, you don't need things air conditioning there in for five days of the year. Where right. it's- <laughs> Get over it. Get over yeah. it, kid. Oh, it's Put the beautiful bus windows here. down and you'll feel fine. <laughs> Uh, it's like starting to feel brisk in the mornings and in the mm. evenings, which is just the best. And then it's sunny and hot today, though. So, well, those of us in the Midwest, these are these are these are good days. All right, Dan, well, let's get into it. So, uh, one of the questions around Christian nationalism has to do with our history. So, I'll make some comments about the history of the United States that I think might inform some ways we can talk about our current situation. Um, so, so that's going to be one of the pieces, um, you know, the question of what was our founding, what is our present situation, and uh, how will our future look? Those are yeah. important questions. And they're all determined by human engagement, by the way. I mean, I'm not one who suggests, nor do I think it's healthy for someone to suggest that the that the matters of a nation are determined by the the hands of the gods. I think the matters of a nation are determined by the choices of people. In our country, it's a democracy, and so it's lots of people's input. In some countries, it's a few people's input, but it's that's uh, nations, political systems, and all, they're human endeavors. So we'll talk a bit about that and what our history of the United States has been uh, and why sometimes can lead to some confusion and some different starting points and ending points for people. Yeah. And then I think there's two big issues that we'll jump into is tell people ahead of time. Um, you know what? What we're going to talk about? So this old preacher trick that yeah, you tell the people what you're going to tell them. You tell them, and then you remind them what you told them. <laughs> if you know that, that attitude oh, yeah. of speaking. Uh, but I think it, the two big issues become issues of identity: who am I? Who are we? And then authority: from where do we draw the impetus and the the credibility for our actions in the world? And those are the two places, how we understand ourselves and from where we draw our authority. That's what will determine, I think, a more healthy or less healthy path as we move forward in, in Christianity. So I've 
yeah, kind of put together this this little this little editorial. Yeah, so it seems like start start at the beginning because the it always comes up like, well, America is a Christian nation. We are founded on Judeo Christian values. So yeah, maybe start there and tell us why why did that get started? This idea that we are a Christian nation because it's not true. <laughs> Yeah. Well, here's here's where I think here's where I think the confusion comes from and why people on both sides of this argument can make a point. And that is it depends on when you start. So, let's just remember that the land we're on, the North American, you know, uh, property uh that the United States takes up a portion of. Well, that's been the home for many peoples over, you know, millennia, right? So, the formation of a nation is a really specific thing. And in the United States, that is really the declaration of independence and the establishment of a constitution, that period of time. That's when people living on this land form something called the United States of America. In contrast to being one of the colonies of Britain or being one of the indigenous peoples groups who lived here. So the formation of a nation becomes really important here. Many of the colonies, I think people are suggesting eight out of 10 or nine out of 11 of the United States, of the British colonies here, uh, you know, that we now call the United States of America. Those colonies were religious outputs or outposts. Many of those colonies had religious requirements for participation. Many of those colonies were founded by people seeking religious freedom from Europe or from England, and they came here to establish a Christian subculture. This is before we had the United States of America, before the Declaration of Independence from England. England itself was a Christian nation. I mean, the, in, just so people remember and know, the Church of England that in the United States we call the Episcopal Church is the U.S. brand separated from the colonies of or from the uh, from the British uh, monarchy, the Church in England is a was a part of the government. There was no separating out the government from the religion. In fact, people who the the king established the Church of England. Right, I've forgotten my dates. Uh, Twelve something didn't like what the Catholics were thinking. Didn't like what you know what these Anabaptists were up to, and established a separate religion called the Church of England. So the colonies did have a religious demand and a religious uh, vision and religious structure. So some people who look back at that period of time say, well, the colonies were the, were the founding of the United States of America. This is where one of the great discussions and disagreements come, is do you think that when we were a set of British colonies, that was like the seed that then grows into the oak tree that is the, this nation. So that this the, these were the beginnings, or do you see the colonies being one political system, and the Declaration of Independence and the establishment of a new nation, the United States of America, in contrast to what was going on with those colonies? Mm -hmm. So were the colonies the purest form of what the whole rest of the nation <laughs> should be? So do the states just become a whole bunch of replicas of these colonies 
Or is there a marked difference? Now, I think history is clear. The founders were saying to England, we are no longer under the rule of England. We are establishing a new nation, and that new nation will leave behind religious requirement. So the establishment of the Declaration of Independence and then the establishment of the Constitution was these people on this part of the planet saying, we hereby form a new nation, leaving those vestiges of religious demand behind. So this is where it gets confusing because sometimes when some people start talking about the history of America, they start pulling up readings and writings and teachings of the colonies. Mm-hmm. where you could make an argument that the colonies were established for free. This is why when you go back to, you know, Thanksgiving narratives in, you know, in the from the East Coast, and you talk about the pilgrims, people <laughs> start to think the pilgrims were the founders of this nation. The pilgrims aren't the founders of the United States. The pilgrims were founders of colonies of Britain. So because this becomes conflated in a lot of people's minds, this is why a notion that the United States at its founding, in other words, the colonies at their establishment, had a religious beginning to them and religious demand, where what the founders of the United States of America were doing was very specifically saying, we're going to not have religion be a demand. In fact, we're going to put that in the First Amendment, that there will be no religion. That stark shift away from religious disqualification laws in many of the colonies to you cannot have religious disqualification laws is what marks for some people the clear statement that while there was a vestiges of religious demand and religious nation in the colonies, that is no longer the case Mm -hmm. uh, before and after. And that distinction is something we're still trying to work out Here's partly why. The people living in those colonies, like it might be easy for you to think, well, and then at some point, you know, 1775, 1776, up to 1779, 92, when there's all this going on with the the war, the Revolutionary War, and then the establishment of a a constitution, that 25-year period of time, well, everybody just flipped a switch in their head. (laughs) But they didn't. People living in Pennsylvania and people living in the other colonies, they're like, Hey, we had religious demand then. We're mm-hmm. just going to keep it. You say what you want now that we're a new nation. And you know how you know news would spread at a period of time like that. So the vestiges of that became part of state narratives and then became part of family narratives and then becomes part of the lore of the country. So it's while it's a clear marker, this is now a new nation without religious qualifications, without religious demands, it's not a Christian nation. It takes a, generations for that to to be removed mm-hmm. in those early periods of time. By the time you get into the 1830s, 40s, you start to lose a lot of that. People, I mean, churches were really decimated in that period of time. It wasn't until this movement of the Great Awakening when churches were uh, alive and full and a whole movement to build a bunch of them, make religion significant again. So it had worked and then had some resurgences, but which, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about in a minute. But this colonies into the establishment of a new nation shift, that's where a lot of the confusion lies. And I'm not saying people don't know their history or anything, but a lot of people just kind of conflate years from 
1623 through 1830, you know, that 200 year period of time. They're just like, I don't know, that period. And where the marker of this becoming a new nation falls is a big deal. So I think the best thing for us to say is, look, there was a religious demand in this country and then we rejected it at the founding of this nation. So it's clearly not a Christian nation. But the sentiments around it have been hard to have been hard to yeah. drop. Well, what's interesting too is a lot of the religious communities that came over in the colonies were seeking religious freedom. They weren't allowed yeah. to practice their religion as they wanted to over in England. And so, that, hey, we're going to have a fresh start. We're going to be able to be who we want to be here in these colonies. And then it morphed into like, well, yeah, but if you're in Pennsylvania, you got to do our thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, to- totally. Because some of the religious freedom was we need to have the freedom to discriminate against people who don't <laughs> right. follow our religion. Like we don't want to be discriminated against as we are by the church of England or by the, right. by the Catholic yeah. church. We want to be the ones who can establish our own space. So freedom didn't mean people are free to do what they want. It meant mm-hmm. this group of people can express their religion and their faith in a certain particular way. But whatever was going on in the colonies, the decision for this to become a United States of America, a separate nation, not a colony of a Christian nation, was to mark this very, very firm yeah. switch. The other place, where now there's two other places I think are worth marking just in the history of how did we then become a Christian nation in, in lore. One of those was the challenge to slavery. Because slavery was being challenged so severely in the United States, slaveholders and slave Uh, allowing states knew that they couldn't root their support of slavery in the constitution, in reason, in uh, uh, shared thought. So they used religion and the Bible and religious teaching to say, the Bible says we should have slaves. So a the, a whole, something that was going on in all of theology and people that study Christian theology know that the power of using the Bible to advocate for slavery did a whole lot to change religion in America and mm-hmm. to support, support slavery. But it also then became a narrative inside of slaveholding states that religion is where they got their authority for public policy. So then there became this resurgence, especially in 1840, 1850, 1860, 1870. So while you maybe saw the colonies in decline in their religious demand, then you have the Southern states start to increase in this demand. Then you jump ahead to the world, world War One, and to, then ultimately to World War Two and post World War Two, where the threats from other nations who held a communist and atheistic perspective became a narrative in the United States, where people said, "Well, what makes us different than Russia, which is was the big communist threat at the time?" Well, they're atheists. So we're opposite of them. And there became this <laughs> big movement to make like religion more a part of American society than it had ever been. So coming out of the war, there was also this need to develop suburbs and for the country to expand into new places. And the government was helping the people through the GI Bill and other things to expand. Little historical side note, the advent of air conditioning allowed people to move into further and further places out of urban cities and to expand in other parts of the country and to live. So they started to move into all these other areas. And one of the questions was, what does it take to have a, like a vital society? 
Well, you look at the cities and they had ethnic churches. So one of the things that people wanted to have in expanding suburban and exurban and new city development was, you know, you got to have a library, you have to have a post office, you got to have a store, you got to have a bar. In the West, you had to have a brothel and you got to have a church. You know, I mean, it's just one of the things that kind of made up the, the, the fabric. So there becomes now another push from the 1840s through the 1850s and 60s while countries are expanding and building whole new suburbs that there becomes a new narrative and then the anti-communist push. So, okay, that's a brief sort of, you know, 150, 200 year history of why we've gotten confused about, about these issues. So when someone says, was America, is America a country with a founding on religion? No, but I can see why you'd be confused that it's, that it might be. One of the questions facing people today, what's our present? How, what, where are we now? Is faith included in civic life or not? Now that's become a real ongoing question through time. How do we do that? And what's our future going to look like? Are we going to include all faiths? Are we going to include some faiths? Is faith going to be something that has any uh, credence in public dialogue? Well, that's some of what we want to. Uh, some of what we, I think, we want to talk about today. So, you got, you got any comments about that? You know, that that second part of the history, the slavery uh, narratives, and then the the anti-communist narratives that put these religious demands back on the United States. No, I think it's it's interesting though that uh, when it's convenient, religion is used to prop up you know the state, and when it's inconvenient, yeah. we need freedom of religion and we need the state to stay out of our churches. So it's sort of a, you know, when it works for me, I want the state to be that's influenced right. by the church. That's, that's really well said that, that, that is the tendency has been the tendency. And I'm guessing is going to continue to be the tendency of how people deal with these, with these issues, because one of them, as I mentioned earlier, is the issue of identity. So we'll talk about identity and authority. So identity is a big deal. It's how do we see ourselves and in what context do we see ourselves? And here's where some Christians really struggle. One of the options that Christians have for how they live in the world, no matter what society they're part of, one option you'll hear talked about a lot is that people will say, I'm a part of a different kingdom. I'm a part of the kingdom of God. I'm not of this cultural world. So my allegiance is to God and to the teachings of God, not to the constitution, not to the president, not to the flag, not to any of this stuff. It's to God. Now, some religions and expressions of faith take that very seriously. You can think of you know, the Amish and the Hasidic Jews and some of the uh, more uh, isolationist religious movements that isolate themselves from the rest of society. And then some kind of only do it halfway, right? They're like, well, I'm going to use your economy and I'm going to you know, walk on the same streets and go to the same schools. But in my head, I'm going to say, I'm not really part of all this. I'm just, I'm just utilizing all this, this scenario. You know, I'm not a member of the club. I'm just using the shower and the, and the workout space, you know, but I'm not <laughs> really in, I'm not part of this. I'm part of another world. And that's what drives it. And there's a lot of that talk now. In fact, some of the stuff you'll see in partners that we partner with in Vote Common Good, some of the people tend to lean more that way. Look, I'm a part of a religious community and we are meant to be the conscience to our government, not a part of it. So there's a some kind of a determination in identity between not fully being an American, 
really your first identity, the first most important thing is your religious identity, not your national identity. Um, I've toyed around with that. That was really popular in the world that I was around. I, it's, it never made sense to me, and I've since sort of stepped away from thinking about it in those terms. Mm. I think we're better off, I'm better off at least, finding an integrated way to be a person who has multiple identities that have to give way to one another. So yes, I'm a Christian and I'm also a member of my family. I'm also the member of a health club and I'm also the citizen of a particular state and of a particular county and of a particular city. And I live on a certain street. Like I have all kinds of identities. And what I need to do is to navigate those identities in such a way that they work well with each other. And we just naturally know how to do this. When someone takes a moment and pulls back and starts articulating all of these things, you're like, oh, okay, that's a maybe a little bit of a, of a ridiculous analogy, but it kind of makes the point, right? So I say, oh, I live on a street and I happen to have property ownership of the house that I'm on. So I can park my car in my driveway any way I want. I can park it sideways. I can put six of them in there. I don't have to move my car for myself if I don't want to, do whatever I want. But as soon as I get to the street, past the curb, now I've got to park my car the way my city tells me to park the car. And I can't drive on both sides of the street like I can on both sides of my driveway. Like I'm a citizen on this street, but when I cross into the public space, there's now a different demand on me, right? When I'm a member of my health club, I can be like, Hey, um, uh, I think there's kids in the in in the in the hot tub that uh, you know are below the age they're supposed to be in the hot tub, and I go tell somebody and tell the kids to you know scram. <laughs> but if a kid's just doing something out on the street, I don't get to come around and be like, "Hey, kid, get out of here!" Right? Because the rules of the health club are you have to be over age twelve or be with an adult. You can't be in there as a eight year old by yourself. So we have all these different identities, all these different rules, and we navigate these things all the time. I think Christians will be better off if we say, hey, I might have some religious demands, and we'll talk about authority in a minute. So I might have some identity demands that come from the authority of my faith, like how and when I take communion or foods that I think are appropriate for a religious person to meet or if I pray or not. I mean, those can be really clear demands and calls and things advocated for inside my religion. Once I start advocating for those in those other spaces, the public spaces, now I can't use my religion as the authority in public spaces any more than I can manage the different identities and, you know, walk around and say like, well, in my family, you know, I'm the youngest brother and the dad. And so when I go into the, you know, the rest of society, go to a political meeting, I'm like, hey, I'm a, I'm a dad here. People are like, don't really care if you're a dad. Don't really care if you're a brother. Yeah. Are you registered to vote? Because then you get to vote. Like, that's it. You don't, you don't get this like, oh, I get to carry that other identity with me in here and say, hey, where do the, where, where, where do the dads that are younger brothers vote? Where, how, how does that go? <laughs> Like we all know, I know it sounds ridiculous, but we know that's not how it goes. So should someone walk in the voting booth or walk into civic life and be like, oh, at my church, I'm paid to be the pastor. So I'm also the pastor here, or I'm a religious person. So now you need to acknowledge those relationships that I have inside of that identity, inside of this identity. This is where the struggle comes from. And people who misunderstand or more likely people who live in a system or a, a setting rather where the majority of people 
have identities that are so closely aligned that they don't know how to separate them. Mm. You heard a candidate in Georgia say something the other day. She's like, well, most of the people in Georgia are Christians. So this is a Christian state. Like, okay, first of all, no, they're not. And secondly, (laughs) no, it's not. But that some people just can't quite separate out those two things because it's just so common for them to have joined those. Yeah, in their world, in their experience. Yeah. All right, so so then it becomes this question of, in our identity, do we expect that the civic systems are going to be the mechanisms by which we accomplish the goals of our faith? This is where it really comes into clarity for a lot of people. And the answer to that should be absolutely not. What drives you in your goals as a religious person? If they're purely your religious identity, it is not up to the rest of civic society or the government to fulfill the goals of your religious calling. And if you can't separate out how I pray, how I take religious sacraments, what I do for my religious benefit from other moral causes, because this is the big problem. So many people have mirrored their moral cause with their faith cause. And they can't separate them out. So much to the point that they'll even say, if someone doesn't hold my faith, I don't even know how they're a moral person. Because for them, all of their morality, all of their ethics feels and sounds like to them that it comes from their faith. So they can't separate out their faith from their morals. Mm -hmm. But in political life, in civic life, we have to have a moral call which is going to lead to this question of authority. Where does our authority for morality come from, if not from our faith? Now, this is where you'll hear people who are struggling with Christian nationalism because they will say things like, well, you know, without my faith, I don't even know how I would, and then they fill in the blank, how I would have hope, how I would uh, care about the, the marginalized, how, why I would, like my faith demands and my faith gives me the structure to make sense of everything. There is no setting in which in Christianity, that's a good idea. A little biblical uh, reflection here for a moment. This was not only a question, of course, at the founding of our nation. It's not only a question on September 8th of 2022. It was a question in the first century. So the Jews of the day, Jesus' day, were under occupation of the Romans and Caesar was the king. So the currency and everything was Roman currency and that's what the Jewish people had to engage with and spend and all the rest of it. So some of the religious leaders of Jesus's day were debating like we're debating. What's the role of a faithful person to God in relationship to their government, especially when the government is an oppressor? So they come to Jesus and they ask him this question. Here's a little, here's a little screen uh, shot of this, of this particular text. Later, so it's after something else, uh, they sent the religious leader sent some Pharisees and Herodians. So these are religious leaders and people that were tied in with the Roman government through Herod and so on. So anyway, these religious leaders, the Pharisees and Herodians, sent some people to Jesus to catch him in his words. So they came to him and they said, teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity, that you've swayed, that you're not swayed by others, that you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. It's right is it right for us to pay imperial tax to Caesar or not? So here's the question, right? Should we as religious people be participating in the government of Caesar? 
do we pay the taxes to Caesar? Right. And do we participate in that world? Yeah, you know, they're they're meaning it as a gotcha question, but it's a fair question. Like, do we participate <laughs> in an oppressive system? That's a question we can wrestle with today. For sure. And the reason it's a gotcha question is because they're like, either way he goes, if he says no, <laughs> the Romans will come get him. If he says yes, the religious people will come get him. How's he going to thread this needle? Mm-hmm. So they say, should we pay it or shouldn't we? And Jesus, because he saw their hypocrisy, they was trying to trick him, said, what, what are you doing? Try, trying to trap me? Bring me the Roman coin, the, the denarius, and let me look at it. So they brought him one of the coins and he asked them, whose image is on this coin and whose inscription? And they said, Caesar. So it's an image of Caesar, which would be really cool that one of those coins, you know, some 2000 year old Caesar coin. Image of Caesar and an inscription from Caesar. So then Jesus looks at it and says, then give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's got his name on it, give it to him. And then give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him that he thread, found a way to thread this needle. What he's saying is you have two different identities. Live in both of them. The things that belong to the civic life and Caesar, go ahead. And then the things that belong to God, go ahead and live those things. Don't meld the two together. This has been early gospel teachings from Jesus. And the reason it's included in the gospels, like everything that's included in the gospels, which were cataloged and and written uh, down later after Christianity got its start, was so that people could reflect back on this for their current situation. So this was not just, oh, and here's another thing Jesus did. It was, hey, y'all, you're going to be dealing with the same question. What do we do? Do we go with the government or do we go with our faith? And Jesus is like, figure out the difference between the two identities. Live in both of the identities. Don't do this, I'm of one world, not of the other. I'm just passing through business. And don't do the, well, whatever the king says, I got to do. This is where the, 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 real, the real struggle comes from for a lot of people. And some people hear me saying that and they're just like, I've been told the opposite my whole life. I've been told I'm supposed to always put the things of God first and all the rest. Well, if it belongs to God, it belongs to God. But if it belongs to the civic life, then it's the civic life. That's why you obey traffic laws and all the other things that we do. And you don't take, you know, secret documents and bury them in your, at your beach house. And <laughs> that's why you don't do those things and you don't attack our federal government. These are the reasons that those things you don't do. Now you have to ask yourself a question inside of any, any system, which is, Hey, is it oppressive? And if it is, what does my faith call on me to do in this in this public space? And am I willing to put myself under the authority of both the government and my faith? And that's what I think Jesus is advocating that, that, that people do. Yeah. There's almost a, a Venn diagram of where the two worlds can overlap. There's your faith duties, the things you feel morally called to by your faith, and then the moral responsibilities called for by our collective society, yep. our country, our laws. And I think there's a lot of room within that overlap to get things done. There's things that I would think, you know, my faith calls me to care for the poor and, you know, our civic morality calls for the same thing generally. But so often the people that are on the side of we're a Christian nation are actually against caring for the poor. The other other authorities, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, well, this is the thing. I think you're exactly on it. What, what then a person of faith has to do when they're going to take their moral call that their faith gives them to be about it in the civic or in civic arenas or in civic life and public life is we have to find authority for those moral callings that our faith gives us. We have to find that in other non-faith related spaces. Now, what the early people of this country said was, well, the laws of nature and nature's God is what we're going to follow. Like there's something built into the natural way of human beings that it's, you know, there's these, these rights that can't be taken away, that those things are just there. No matter what your faith tells you, we know those things are there. Now you can argue about whether they should have framed it that way or not, but what they were trying to argue and the only way forward here is that we find a way for us to say our morals that come from our faith also can come from these other places that don't require our faith. This is the difference between caring for the poor and taking communion. You can't find anything in the rest of, you know, morality or science or law that says, hey, everybody should take communion. You can find we're better as a society and as humanity when we care for the most vulnerable among us in both faith and in non-faith traditions. So what our demand is, is that we find our identity and authorities in spaces outside of our faith. And the idea that you're going to put one before the other, either way, this, 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 can be a, you know, this can be the devil's bridge where you can fall off one side or you can fall off the other. We don't have to say, well, you're all, the, the only way you can have uh, you know, civic life is if faith is excluded, just outrageous. People have a faith, faith identity. It's like, of course, they're going to be fed by their, by yeah. their faith. But if it's only from your faith, it's only from your faith's teaching that you can find some reason and rationale for your behavior. And I see a lot of people falling over that side of the, mm -hmm. you know, a little devil's bridge here that they end up saying things like, well, the reason we should, and then fill in the blank, not go to war, not execute people, we should protect women's rights, we should not be racist, is because my faith says so. Well, that's a good internal motivation. You better find some other motivation outside of that or what you're functionally doing, no matter if it's a good cause or a bad cause, you're using the same rationale as someone who wants to take their religion and make their religion the driving force for how our society is is organized and structured. Yeah, and I so hear a lot of people- if the 10 commandments can't be articulated in some other way, mm -hmm. then we shouldn't be post, well, we shouldn't be posting 10 commandments anyway, <laughs> we but we shouldn't be in leaning into the, into, the 10, <laughs> into the 10 commandments because what we need this to come from is what's often referred to as a secular law, meaning it's not a part of any, any one particular mm -hmm. religion. So, so sorry, I interrupted you. No, I, I hear a lot of people say like, if we, if we cut out religion, then how can people even be moral? How do they know how to- do the right thing. But there's this interesting uh, study poll that came out, and it comes out again and again over the years, like, like a questionnaire of what do you think is right and wrong, and things like torture, the death penalty. The group that is most consistently against torture, against the death penalty, are atheists and agnostics. It's not the religious people that claim to have the moral high ground. It's And so... Somehow, you know, yes. people outside of religious traditions are able to 
determine eh, maybe we shouldn't kill people. Maybe we shouldn't torture people. And maybe we don't need a holy book to tell us that this is wrong. We can just know that it's bad to torture someone. Totally. Look, if you've never been around somebody from a different faith, from your own, who has said to you, you don't follow my holy teachings, whether they're from a book or passed down from you know person to person, how can you be moral? If you've never had that experience where someone says, I root my morality inside my religious teaching, you're not in my religion, therefore you're not moral. If you're only a Christian or a person from Jewish background that says that to other people, Try it on for size when someone tells you, (laughs) oh, you don't read the Quran? There's no way you can be moral. You'd be like, of course I can be moral without the Quran. I have this. Mm -hmm. They're like, well, that doesn't count for me. I mean, you don't have this. You don't have enough. If you've never had that experience, have it sometime, and it will clarify for you how ridiculous it is when you say that to someone else. Mm -hmm. And if the only thing we have to prop up our political call is our faith, you're functioning in a Christian nationalist way if you're Christian or pick your religion and and you know nationalize nationalize that. So this calling and the people who really struggle with this, the big question is where from what authority does your morality come from and does morality come from? So people who would say things like, well, where in the Bible is that? That question, you know, uh, I got this Black Lives Matter sign over my shoulder. We have one on our front yard. People are like, why do you have a Black Lives Matter thing? What what, what Bible passage is that? I'm like, you think I root every moral call in just a Bible passage? Like, I'd be glad to share them with you why I think it dovetails and both of my identities, my identity as a religious person and my identity as an American citizen, both have demands that I should say Black Lives Matter. But that's not where it needs to come from. Like, that's not the only place. Of course, it's not the only place. And this is why, you know, rulings uh, that are coming from the Supreme Court that feel like they're closer to the religious demand than they are to the secular demand. What we've decided as a nation way back to the start of this conversation 30 minutes ago was, no, we decided we're not going to be a religiously oriented nation. We're going to be a secular nation that finds its morality in the other things of human reason and knowledge and nature and science and all of that. And that's how we're going to be guided. And if we can't find it there, then we better hold up before we put any kind of a civic demand on anyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the things the founding fathers did get right was creating the separation of church and state and said, hey, this could go south if one religion has the monopoly over the government. I mean, they did a lot of other things very wrong right out of the gate, too. They didn't view mm-hmm. Native Americans as people. It's written That's right, right into our you know, Declaration of Independence and Constitution uh, that Africans that were enslaved were you know, three-fifths of a human. They, they did some horrible things right in the founding of this country. But one of the good things was this separation of church and state. If we can't convince people outside our religion that something is good for everybody, then maybe the government shouldn't be forcing it on everybody. Totally. Well said, Dan. And that's that's why we around here talk about common good, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're like, what is that? What's the thing that we hold in common that we know is good? Not the thing that my religion or faith teaches alone. And if we're not adept enough to figure out 
where the commonality of the things of our faith can be found in other rationale, then either we're not working hard enough or it's just a religious demand. So do your work, do your efforts, and then figure out, hey, maybe this is just something that should be relig- like, look, I think it's important that people pay taxes because there's a way that we fund our everything but our federal government is funded by our taxes. But you don't use tithing laws to justify taxes, right? You don't say, well, in my tradition, we tithe 10% of our income to such and such. That's just not how you do it. If you did, you'd be doing using a religious demand not some sort of a common good demand or some sort of a civic demand, some sort of a secular demand. So I think what's important is that religious people also function in secular ways. But I'm just riffing off Jesus. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That's what you're supposed to do. And uh, the, you know, the, the trippy bridge uh, that's you know, got a canyon on both sides, it's easy to, to fall off either one of those sides and very difficult to find a way forward. So you you work at it. I mean, that's the that's the whole thing about this. When people say like this American experiment's a little up for this is a big part of it. Now, what a lot of people are presenting in our public policy today is something that just gets so much of this wrong. They I think they tell a history that's inaccurate. I think they've conflated morality with their faith and they've conflated public policy with uh, teachings from from the Bible. Uh, and Look, I'm all for teachings in the Bible. I've written a whole bunch of books about it. I practice it. I want to advocate for it, all that. But not as our civic draw, not as our civic demand, mm-hmm. uh, but one that can form that part of my identity. And then when I'm in my other identities as a person in, the, in civic life, we're, we're multi-identitied people. And this is the thing that just Christianity has continued in the 20th and 21st century. There's been a lot of Christian teaching that's all about identity. And I just think it's really going the wrong way. It's trying to say to people, God first, all this first language, as opposed to multiplicity of identities. And if that's a whole new concept to people, I understand that it might, and it might seem counterintuitive that someone would say the best way to be faithful as a Christian is with multiple identities. Well, Mark 12, 17, give to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's is just one of the many places where a religious person following the teachings of Jesus would say to themselves, oh, I have to have multiple identities. Of course I do. That's an important thing. Yep. All right. That's what I got for the day. Yeah, it takes a lot of a lot of work to figure it out when the rubber meets the road, but yep. it's the work, work. we got to do. I hope it helped. Uh, if it did, you know, share this with a friend or just keep it to yourself. You know, sometimes the things are most, most precious to you. You just store them away in your heart like Mary. The announcement of the birth of Jesus. All right. Okay. We'll see you. Bye.